that is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, 2 to 16. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote, I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. G'day everyone. Um, if I've not yet had the pleasure of meeting you, my name's Russ. It'd be great to catch up afterwards. Um, keep your Bibles open because um, we're going to be going back to our passage there in 2 Corinthians 7 pretty often. Um, Let's get started. Regret. Regret's a funny thing. Um, I was out at Carolyn's parents' place. It's a dam. I was going, uh, sorry, it's a farm with a dam, multiple dams. I was out for a walk and I came across one of these said dams. And so I do what a sensible person would do and I start chucking rocks into this dam. Um, And there I am chucking rocks into the dam when I notice that there is an object. It's white, about so big, and it's floating out in the middle of the dam. So again, being a sensible person... I start chucking rocks at this object. And my first throw goes wide, but my second throw, from the moment it left my hand, I knew I had nailed it. And as that rock sails towards its target, my mind very quickly flashed through a series of thoughts. It went something like that, uh, something like this. Oh, that is a good throw. And the second, actually, that's going to hit it. And finally, 
I wonder what it is. Now, your regret is a funny thing, and I was amazed at how quickly I regretted throwing that rock. Certainly well before the thunk of rock on plastic, uh, the object uh, starting to produce bubbles and disappearing from view, and the two of us both sharing something of a sinking feeling. Um, I'm sure you can relate, maybe not with chucking rocks, but I'm sure that there have been times when the words have only just left your mouth and you're already wishing you could take them back. Uh, You've only just done that thing and you're wishing that you hadn't. And regret, it's not just felt in the moment, it's a feeling that can persist with us for a really long time. As you look back on 2022, I'm sure it had some high moments, but I have no doubt that there are also things that you regret, things that you wish you had done differently. Um, Regret can be thought of as a sadness or sorrow over past words and actions. And and I wonder, would you consider regret to be healthy or harmful? It's common to try and reframe regret as an opportunity to learn some lessons, uh, to grow, to do a better job next time. Um, But regret can also be a nagging, persistent, even crippling feeling that can be really hard to shake. And particularly, how are we as God's people, who are perhaps especially aware of our failings, how are we supposed to think about regret? Throughout the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul has been on the defensive. He has been under attack from members of the Corinthian church, and his goal is still to restore the relationship with this church. But as we're going to see this morning, in order for there to be reconciliation, first there needs to be regret say that again, in order for there to be reconciliation, there must first be regret. So let's pray together and then we'll get into it. Lord, as we read your word today, we ask that we would be listening carefully, that you would give us understanding and that we would be changed, that more and more we would live lives that are pleasing to you. Amen. So the first thing we notice as we get into today's passage is Paul's genuine desire for reconciliation with the Christians in Corinth. Have a look with me. It's there, chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. Here Paul appeals to the Corinthians for a full restoration of the relationship between them. It reads very similarly to the chapter before, chapter 6, in verses 11 through to 13. Uh, There it says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. So not only does Paul clearly want reconciliation, he's gone to great lengths to ensure that nothing in his own behaviour could prevent such reconciliation. We have wronged no one, corrupted no one, exploited no one. In the nicest way possible, he's kind of saying to them, it's not me, it's you. He's doing everything that he can to restore this relationship. And it's worth pausing to remember that Paul is striving for this reconciliation even after all that the Corinthians have put him through. See, Paul helped found this church. He spent a full year and a half with them, helping things get off the ground. But not long after Paul moves on to a different town, he hears news about how the church is going and it's not good. They've got everything from division and infighting. They've got extreme sexual immorality. They've got Christians taking each other to court. They've even got folks preaching that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It is a mess. 
and multiple letters from Paul and visits from Paul's co-workers have not resolved the issues. Indeed, when Paul himself goes and visits the Corinthians, he finds himself under personal attack from some members of this church that he helped establish. So painful is this encounter for Paul and the Corinthians that Paul finds himself having to retreat and returns to corresponding with them by letter only. And yet, despite all of this, Paul is still trying to restore this relationship. In spite of all the the time, the effort, the pain that these people have cost him. In fact, I think it's worth asking, why is Paul so committed to them? Wouldn't it just be easier to let them go their own way? Somebody else can deal with those Corinthians. Maybe Paul or Apollos, they're good guys. Or maybe Paul's solution should be to reduce the relationship, okay? Bring it down to the level of just kind of a working interaction. You've heard this line, I'm sure. You don't have to like each other, just get the job done. I want to ask, would you? Would you be working so hard to restore this relationship? You could easily avoid these people. You're not related to them. Yeah, you don't live in the same town as them. Why is Paul so desperate to be reconciled to the Corinthians? Well, it's because Paul understands and has been changed by the gospel. Paul's desire to be reconciled with the Corinthians comes from his understanding that he has been reconciled to God. If we flick back, and again it should appear on the screen, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, it says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. Paul understands that through Christ's death and resurrection, he has been reconciled to God. The hostility that previously existed between Paul and God has been taken away. Thanks to Jesus, the sin that was Paul's will not be counted against him and he can now enjoy a restored relationship with God himself. Indeed, this is not just possible for Paul. This is possible for anyone. For you, for me, we can be reconciled with God. And please, if that's news to you, can I encourage you to come touch base with me afterwards? But let's take note of the next bit. Starting from the second half of verse 19, it says, And he, that being God, has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Having ourselves been reconciled to God, Christians now have a job to do. We are ambassadors. An ambassador is a bit like a representative. If you were serving as the Australian ambassador in another country, it would be your job to represent Australia and to act on behalf of Australia in that other country. Here, Christians are referred to as Christ's ambassadors and we act on Christ's behalf calling for others to be reconciled with God. But as ambassadors of Christ, we don't just speak the message, we need to live it. I want to ask, why is it always so scandalous when it comes to light that someone serving in the police force has been involved in crime? Well, we take issue with that because as a representative of the law, we expect the police to live by the law. And likewise, does it feel slightly odd, even ironic, for health workers to be out enjoying a cigarette break? Surely someone who wants to promote the health of others should then live out those same values in their own lifestyle. 
And if you were the ambassador of Australia to New Zealand, you can't barrack for the All Blacks. That's just, you're the Australian rep. You can't do that. It doesn't work. So why is Paul working so hard to be reconciled with these Corinthians? Well, have a look again. Chapter 5, verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And this reconciliation that Paul's talking about is primarily between us and God, but as ambassadors of Christ, we should also seek to live out this daily desire for reconciliation in our human relationships. So, how do you go with that? If you're a Christian and are enjoying peace with God, how committed are you to also being at peace with others, particularly your fellow believers? Can you, like Paul, claim that you are not putting any obstacle in the way of reconciliation? Or is it the case that there might actually be someone that you need to apologise to and seek forgiveness from? And it is worth noting, it takes two to tango. And no matter how hard you might work for reconciliation, it might not be possible because of the other person. That's a real scenario for many people. But even so, it is still possible to have the attitude, the desire, the stance of reconciliation, even without reconciliation actually being achieved. I mean, that's the position that Paul finds himself in right now with these Corinthians. And it's also God's stance towards millions of non-Christians who at present are yet to take up his offer of salvation. Nevertheless, if you are Christ's ambassador, then, like Paul, you should be committed to reconciliation because you know that you have been reconciled to God through Christ. Now, straight after expressing his deep desire for this relationship to be restored, Paul's letter takes a positive turn. Read it with me. Um, We're going to pick it up from verse 4. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside and fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. It's helpful for us to again pause and understand some of the backstory between Paul and the Corinthians. And there'll there'll be a little slide up on the screen to try and help us wrap our heads around here. Um, After the painful visit to Corinth, in which he and his ministry were personally attacked by members of the church, Paul leaves Corinth and continues his travels, but he also writes them a letter. And it's, it's sometimes referred to as the severe letter. We don't have a copy of this letter in our Bibles, but it would fit somewhere between 1 and 2 Corinthians. In this severe letter, it's thought that Paul basically plays some hardball with the Corinthians. He calls on them to get serious about dealing with the sin that is in their church, and by extension, he calls on them to renew their support for him and his ministry. And along with this severe letter that he sends to the Corinthians, Paul also sends his co-worker, his buddy Titus, to follow things up, and to get back to Paul with the church's response. And Paul hints at his nervousness as he awaits this news from Titus. You can see in verse 5 he refers to fears within, or earlier in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 13, he mentions how uneasy he was while he was at Troas because he had still not been able to catch up with Titus. However, eventually, Paul and Titus do cross paths, and the news Titus brings is good. You can see it in verses 6 and 7. 
But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. And he told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. This is good. The Corinthians have responded well to the letter, and that is a huge relief for Paul. He's glad to hear that they are concerned for him, and the fact that they are experiencing deep sorrow brings him great joy. Yeah, that's right. That's what it says. Well, that, that's, is that weird? That seems weird. One of the things that Paul is joyful about is their sorrow, their sadness, their grief. I mean, is this the same joy that Parramatta fans feel when they hear that the dragons are grieving? Is it that kind of joy? Well, again, let's read on. Pick it up with verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed by us in any way. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Paul is joyful because his severe letter has caused them to feel sorrow at their sin. He has caused them to regret what they have done. But notice, not all kinds of regret are the same or have the same outcome. This is our second point this morning. Have a look again in verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. There are two kinds of regret over sin, two kinds of sadness, two kinds of grief or sorrow, worldly and godly, and they are not the same. They both feel bad. You feel remorse about the past, but one is godly, leading to repentance and eternal life, The other is worldly and leads to death. It's so important that we understand this. It's not enough to just feel bad about our sin. We need to examine ourselves closely and ask what kind of grief are we feeling because the stakes could not be higher. This is life or death. Consider Judas and Peter on the night Jesus was betrayed. Both men betray Jesus. Judas tips off the Jews for 30 pieces of silver And three times, Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. Both men totally regret what they have done. Uh, Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. Judas uh, returns to the Pharisees and attempts to return the money. So both sinned, both regretted that sin. But Peter is forgiven and goes on to become the rock on which Jesus builds his church. Judas hangs himself. There are two kinds of sorrow. Two kinds of regret. So what is the difference between this worldly and godly grief? Well, the question we need to ask is, why do I regret my sin? I'm going to take it as a given that you are upset with your sin, but we need to ask, why? You see, worldly grief comes from me having a bruised ego, a loss of standing in the eyes of other people. My actions have tarnished my name, I look stupid, and so I feel bad. I regret what I've done. But that's not godly. If I regret my harsh words to another person because I look like some turkey with anger issues, that's not godly. I'm just worrying about what other people will think of me. That's the fear of man, not the fear of God. 
If I regret my secret porn addiction because I'm terrified that I'll be discovered and others will think less of me, that's not godly. That's worldly. Sadness over sin that is worldly comes from seeing my own name get dragged through the mud and me not liking that. It's grief that comes from acting like I am the main victim of sin, that I am the one who is first and foremost impacted by sin. It is not godly. It does not lead to repentance. It leads to death. But godly sorrow, on the other hand, it sees what's really going on. It comes from the right realisation that it is God's name, the name above all names that has been tarnished. It comes from the right realisation that all sin is primarily against God. Consider, for example, Psalm 51. This will also come up on the screen. Psalm 51 was written by King David just after he has sinned terribly. Here is Israel's king, God's chosen guy, yet he's just taken Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. He slept with her, got her pregnant. He's arranged for Uriah to be killed off. He's wronged Bathsheba, Uriah, the child, their families, arguably the whole nation of Israel. And yet, what does he write in Psalm 51 verse 4? Against you, that is God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against God only? How can that be right? Well, think of Luke chapter 5. Jesus heals a paralysed guy. Jesus is there teaching inside a house. Paralysed guy gets brought along by his mates. They make a hole in the roof. They drop the guy in through the ceiling right in front of Jesus. Jesus turns to the guy and says, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And a couple of Pharisees who are present take issue with this because they correctly recognize that only God can forgive sins. And why is it that only God can forgive sins? Because all sin is an act against God. Or finally, consider Ezekiel 36.22. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned amongst the nations where you have gone. See, don't get me wrong, when we sin, we ourselves are certainly impacted and other people definitely get hurt in very real ways, but primarily and most significantly, sin is against God. It is a breaking of His law, a rebellion against His rule, a harming of His creation. And godly sorrow gets that. See, what's so upsetting about my sin is that I'm taking up arms against my own Creator. We are committing treason against our own king. We are betraying our own father who knows us and loves us. That's who your sin is against. And if you're a Christian, I want to take it up a notch because it's actually a little bit worse. When you sin, you are taking the name of your saviour, the name which you bear, and that's what gets dragged through the mud. You're acting like the cross meant nothing, does nothing. And that God's spirit which dwells inside of you, well, that makes no difference. It changes nothing about me. See, what's so awful about our sin is not the impact it has on you. It's not even the pain it causes other people. It's that God's name is profaned. So what kind of sorrow does your sin cause you to feel? Is it worldly or is it godly? Do you regret your habit of comfort eating because of the effect on your waistline 
or because God is the God of all comfort and it's him you're supposed to be looking to? Do you regret making those inappropriate jokes because people will think less of you or because we have a God who highly values words and wants us to use them wisely? Do you wince at your tendency towards gossip because you know others won't trust you with a secret or because we worship a God who is faithful and true and calls us to be likewise? Do you dislike your greed because your friends think you're stingy or because you clearly don't trust that God's going to provide for you? And do you hate that secret sin of yours because you promised yourself you wouldn't do it again and you're so disappointed in yourself? Or do you hate it because there's a God in heaven who sees you, who knows you, who loves you, but you can bet his standards are higher than yours and it's him that you've let down? Do you hate your sin? Not just for what it does to you, but because God's most holy and beautiful name is tarnished. Do you grieve your sin with godly grief? If we don't understand this, if we don't feel this, we will not grasp the true horror of our sin and we will not experience the godly sorrow that leads us to kneel at the foot of the cross in repentance. But it is so important that we do understand this because this is life or death. Paul, he's joyful. He is joyful at the grief of the Corinthians because he sees that it is godly grief. And what makes it godly is not just what they are upset about, but what their grief leads them to do. This is our third point this morning. Godly regret for all the pain and the heartache that it should cause us, it is fruitful for salvation. Have a look at with me in verses 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself. What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So godly sorrow, godly regret produces action. It's a little bit like uh, when you get sick. You wake up in the morning you got a crooked throat, some aches and pains, runny nose. Those symptoms, that pain, it tells you that something is wrong and you need to do something about it. So whether it's calling your boss to tell him you're taking a sickie, whether it's going down to the chemist to get some meds, whether it's calling your GP, whether it's making a trip to the ED, whatever it is you've got to do, the pain points to the sickness and gets us moving to do something about it. And in a similar way, godly sorrow about sin moves us to action in fact we've actually already seen this in that godly sorrow leads to repentance repentance is an act it's a change in thoughts and behavior it's a heartfelt turning away from sin and turning to a way of living that glorifies god's name rather than tarnishing it and paul can see that this is the case for the corinthians they're genuine They are alarmed. They are horrified by the sin that is amongst them. They are working hard to set things straight. And none of this makes them right with God. We are saved only through what Jesus has done on the cross. We are saved by grace and grace only. But the actions of these Corinthians show us that their repentance was sincere and their sorrow was godly. 
So again, is your sorrow godly? If it is, it should cause you to repent, to turn from sin and to seek to live God's way. I don't want to harp on this too much, partly because Jeff did such a good job of it last week. But can I recommend that you go check out the second half of chapter 6, just before this, and have a listen to last Sunday's sermon to see what that looks like. To give you the summary, we are to make no truce with sin. We are to leave no stone unturned in our fight against sin. That's godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, it does not have the same effect. For a start, it cannot produce genuine repentance because worldly sorrow springs from the fear of man rather than the fear of God. And while the fear of man might lead you to try and be a better person, make some New Year's resolutions, maybe even go to counselling, I don't know, none of that is the same as godly sorrow which will lead you to repent and fall on the grace of God. And in fact, I want to say worldly sorrow, what's more likely is that it will lead you to ever-increasing secrecy and isolation and shame as you seek to hide your failings from others. But godly regret, it is totally different. It drags our sin and guilt out into the open so that it can be dealt with. And as a side point, but I think still an important one, this means that godly regret is temporary. As Christians, we are not doomed to forever mope around in our sin and our guilt and our shame. We don't deny that we are guilty. We're not pretending that our sin is okay. Grief is the symptom of the sickness and the sickness is real, but so is grace. So is forgiveness. So is repentance. And if you have repented, if you do trust in what Jesus did on the cross, then you can know that you are forgiven. You are reconciled with God and yours is the freedom that comes from being in Christ. And to act otherwise, well, that's effectively to say, I'm beyond help, I can't be forgiven, what Jesus did, it doesn't count for me. And again, that is not godly. It will not lead to repentance. In fact, it's looking at the perfect blood of Jesus and saying, it's not good enough to wash away my sin. It's not enough to pay my debt. So there are two kinds of grief. One produces repentance, salvation and godliness. The other produces death. What kind of sorrow do you feel over your sin? And what does that sorrow lead you to do? To try and bring all of this together, we have the gospel of repentance and reconciliation. Through Jesus, God has made it possible for there to be peace between himself and us. Do you have peace with God? As ambassadors of Christ, we are also called to be at peace with each other. Are there people that you need to seek to be reconciled with? True repentance and reconciliation are preceded by godly regret over sin. As Christians, we do not need to shy away from our guilt. Rather, we, we recognise the awful, awful truth of our sin and we repent, knowing that God is faithful and he will forgive us. And Then we dust ourselves off, we take up the fight against sin and we enjoy the freedom and the peace with God that really is ours in Christ. Do not hide from your sorrow and shame. Let it lead you to repentance.
And finally, don't shy away from having conversations that cause godly grief in others. Wanting to be on good terms with Corinthians did not prevent Paul from saying some hard words to them. In fact, he spoke to them out of a genuine love for them because he knew that the stakes were so high. And the Corinthians, to their credit, they heard those words and rather than getting fired up or getting defensive, they were convicted of their sin. Are you willing to hear the hard words and be brought to the point of godly regret by your brothers and sisters? May we be people who, like Paul and like the Corinthians, recognise the truth of our sin and feel the regret that it should cause us. But may we also be people who are quick to seek and find and enjoy the reconciliation that is only found at the foot of the cross. Please join me. Let's pray together. Lord God, you know us. You know everything about us. But before a thought is in our heads or a word is on our lips, you know it entirely. And you know all the ways that we have rejected you, all the ways that we have ignored you, all the ways that we have gone to war with you. And yet in spite of this, you love us and you have gone to great lengths so that we might have peace with you. Father, we ask that you would convict us of our sin. We ask that we would see its seriousness so that we, in turn, might take it seriously. We ask that we would feel godly regret, that we would love you and your name so dearly that the fact of our sin would cause us deep sorrow. And Lord, we ask that this sorrow would cause us to run to you in repentance and faith, confident that you are faithful and will forgive us. And Lord, refresh our hearts, restore in us the joy of being reconciled to you and strengthen us so that we might get on with living lives that are pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.